You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly Bulletproof Radio. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. And today, we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics of all time, dirt. No, I don't mean regenerative agriculture and the fact that grass-fed animals make for healthy soil and that actually having run a regenerative ag farm for almost 10 years, uh, that I can see that firsthand. That's a fundamental part of the Bulletproof Diet and just biohacking in general. But there's reasons for that. So what we're going to talk about today is not just dirt, but why your kids ought to be eating some dirt and the other things that kids ought to eat. Our guest today is Andrea Bemis, who is the genius behind the Farm to Table blog called Let Them Eat Dirt, which is a name I absolutely love. She's written a couple incredible books called Dishing Up the Dirt and Local Dirt. And she and I both share a really strong belief in the family dinner. And she's worked on helping parents navigate away from the weird chemicals and additives that are in the foods a lot of us have allowed our kids to consume. My kids don't eat that junk. They actually almost always recognize it themselves at this point being 13 and 16, but it took years to get them there. And part of it was we started out not doing that. So Andrea is going to teach you today on the show what to do to help your kids eat the foods that make them stronger. And also there's a ritual around dinner. And I can tell you, I've had dinner with my kids every single night that I was home to a ridiculous extent, probably more so than any other CEO that I know because it's so important to me. So this is someone who shares the biohacking values that I have. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Andrea, welcome. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me. All right. Why don't kids want to eat good stuff? Well, because their taste buds have been hijacked. I think that early on, kids are exposed to processed carbohydrates, processed sugar, 
stuff that comes out of a package from early on and it changes their brain chemistry. It changes their taste buds and it's addicting. And it's sad that their taste buds from infancy can be altered. What is the first mistake that parents of very, very young children make? Well, I'll speak from my, my mistake was probably taking my pediatrician's advice to a T, you know, just the rice cereal that my baby could pretty much eat what I was eating, even if it was like French fries or, you know, the reason I wrote this book is because I started to steer off my own path, which is I have a, an organic vegetable farm. And all of a sudden I was shopping the baby food aisle when my baby was six months old. And I was like, this doesn't feel right. So I think that the first mistake that I made was shopping the baby food aisle. You actually have a farm, which is a major fantasy for a lot of listeners. And you went to the baby food aisle. Why? Because I was a new vulnerable mom and my pediatrician recommended rice cereal. And so that's what I did as a Again, a vulnerable mom that was like, well, the doctor knows. And very soon after that, didn't, it didn't feel right. But that was kind of my first mistake was in the baby food aisle. Now, to be clear, there are some functional pediatricians, actually a good number who run thriving practices that teach you how to feed your baby. So I don't want to throw the profession under the bus. However, the vast majority of pediatricians will tell you to eat formula instead of breast milk and they'll tell you to buy like low quality processed food that has you know a sticker on it that says it's good for you or good for your baby with no evidence behind it so that does happen because that's what they all do not because it's Mm science-based how long did it take you to figure out that prepackaged highly processed baby food wasn't right for your kid oh pretty soon i would say within the first couple days my baby was super constipated and i just I knew in my gut that, wait, we have a grocery store outside our house, which I'm very lucky. You know, I know that that's not the case for 99% of moms and dads, but I had to re-listen to my my gut. And my gut was saying I didn't need to be cruising the, the aisles at the grocery store. I've seen, though, even like vegan kids whose parents mean really well, where they have failure to thrive, they have brittle bones, they have a lack of cholesterol and saturated fat in their diet, even though breast milk (laughs) is predominantly saturated fat uh, and things like that. So you aren't talking about switching to just vegetables, are you? Because kids have a hard time with that. They do. And I talk about this in my book. So I will, to back up, once I kind of steered off my path, I dove into childhood nutrition from more of a holistic perspective and, and also knowing me as a grown woman, what I need to eat and thrive is protein, meat, vegetables. And I started to think, well, that's got to be similar to my child, my baby. So I started to do my own research that was not as conventional and, and started to learn more about what babies and young kids need to thrive. And that is harder to find in prepackaged prepared foods. So yeah, we can grow the vegetables, but we've got to go to the, to the meat, our, our neighbors are meat farmers. We, again, we're lucky. I, I wrote this book from a, from a place of bounty. I live in a very bountiful area, but you don't have to live on a farm or live next to farms to feed your kids nutrient-dense foods. And some of the first foods that I learned that are the best and most gentle in the digestive system are, are meats, you know, liver, 
beef, um, which, and I think one thing I learned too is babies and you've got kids and I don't, when they're really little, things don't taste, you know, they're more accepting when they're younger. It's as they get older that, and I'm in, I'm in it, I'm in the weeds with my toddler, but it's a good time to introduce their taste buds to very strong, interesting flavors so that they get that foundation. And that's what I want every mom and dad to know that get the gnarly flavors in because they'll start to accept it and, and have an appreciation for it. One of my favorite pictures of my daughter when she was probably around two is she's holding a lamb chop and trying to eat it. So it's like a smiley face made out of meat. And she has this just ravenous, happy look on her face. Like they're just getting it. Yes. And then uh, on the 4th of July, I cooked grass-fed lamb chops at a barbecue for a bunch of people. And I passed them out. And as soon as I was done, one of the moms at the party runs up and goes, my baby really liked that and wants more. Where can I get more? I'm like, oh no, I gave away all the meat popsicles. But they will eat it and they love it. And you can, they know that it makes them thrive. And yeah, they, I think they like it because their body is hungry for it. Yeah. The first foods that I fed my kids when they went off of breast milk, which was around 10, 12 months for the first one, 10 months for the second one, because he just didn't want to, was actually water with collagen, grated liver, uh, and a little bit of MCT oil because it's so predominant in breast milk. And we'd blend that up and they would drink it and a little bit of salt too. And they would drink it and it was just fine. And this was supplementals. I'm not recommending anyone do that as the only food you feed your kid. But that was very successful. And since then, because they're not allergic, as many uh, egg yolks as they wanted, we would put raw egg yolk in there. They also would eat little bits of like blended meat that we would blend ourselves. What would you change about that, knowing what you know now? I mean, I would... I mean, that all sounds great. What Knowing what I know now is, I mean, I'm big on the egg yolks, the grated meat. I think what I'm doing differently with, I have a three-year-old and a my youngest just turned one a couple of days ago is I did more purees with my older one and my younger one wanted more of the finger food. So we kind of didn't really do, so for me, it was like, here is the egg, you know, I would do like a soft boiled egg yolk, or here is the pork chop or the, you know, the beef chop, lamb chop, like giving her the whole feet mm -hmm. pieces of food, which is different than with my older one. I was more nervous. And that's why I have the purees in the cookbook as well, because I just, I want to meet parents where they're at. They can skip the purees and go straight to the next section, which is more of the finger foods. Or like I did with my second is more of the finger foods from the get-go so that they're working on their pincher grasp and getting the nutrients in that way. What percentage of your time do you spend managing your farm? Oh God. Well, since having, <laughs> so our, our farm is our livelihood. It is a full operation. Since I had, my oldest is three, we've hired extra help. So the farm, my husband is full-time. We've got a crew of, there's five of us out there and I'm out there every day, mm -hmm. but I am, I'm in and out because I've got the yeah. kiddos. And how big is your farm? So we're on six acres and we cultivate just under three. Okay. For people listening, you're thinking you want to bug out homestead. Good plan, by the way. I think I was early to the party building one on uh, Vancouver Island and all of that. We had 32 acres. And of that, about three acres was um, plants. And then the rest of it was pigs and sheep and chickens and a couple cows. Not the rest of it. A lot of it's just forest, but we, you know, we had the animals roaming around. 
I didn't find that we would have been able to subsist as a family on three acres of just vegetables. There's just not enough nutrients in vegetables. Like that is a starvation level diet. You could do it with chickens and eggs if you were desperate, but I mean, at least have a couple of pigs every year. They're the cheapest way of making protein or sheep, which just mow the lawn for you. They just crap everywhere, but then you can eat them. So it's a good trade-off. No, no lawn mowing, occasional poop shoveling. Do you guys ever think about adding animals? We've done pigs and we've done chickens, but we keep it pretty. Um, we've got neighbors that do all the meat. They're really good at it. We're like, you know what? You you do the livestock. We'll stick to we'll stick to the vegetables. Yeah, our friend George down the road had 300 head of grass fed cattle, and given what cows did to our pasture, I'm like, yeah, we'll just buy his cows. Yeah, it's just yeah. easier that way. Yep. So people listening, going, what the heck? 90% of small farmers have a day job and they come home and they farm because it's really hard to make a living. You have enough help on the farm with five people, then you got to pay them. And it's like, it is not a low stress lifestyle. And it's like, how often do you leave the farm to go on vacation? Oh, never. <laughs> yeah, and that's that, the other that, thing. Like if you yeah. leave the chicken starve or something eats them, like it, it, oh, it holds things, you down. Things, no, things will die. Things will die. I mean, we're yeah. watering constantly. We run a CSA. I mean, people have already bought it. You know, we've already collected money. We've got to produce. So we collect money before we even have something to show for it every year. So we're, yeah, no, we don't go, we don't vacation. You know, we got to sell a lot more head lettuce before we can go on fancy vacations. Yeah, so I, I want listeners to know like that's the life of small farmers, which is not a bad life, but it's not what you think it is. And the alternative to that, before I had the farm is I would take the kids, both of them when they were basically like six months and whatever, two, two and a half, I'd put them in a red wagon and we'd drive it in the back of the station wagon because I refused to drive a minivan to the farmer's market. And then I'd shuttle the kids around and have a backpack with you know heads of fennel sticking out like hair from the Predator movie. And the blueberries packed around the kids. And, you know, it was a two-hour family event, but I'd feed the family organic stuff from local farmers. And it was cheaper than going to Whole Foods anyway. And it was fresher. And so I, I want everyone listening to get a CSA. If you don't know what that is, do you have a list, something on your website that talks about your CSA? Yeah, I, on our farm website, which is gotumbleweed.com. Gotumbleweed.com, okay. And for your yeah. book, what's your book website for the How to Feed Your Kids? Letthemeatdirt.com. Let them Let our, let them eat dirt kids.com. Okay. Let them eat dirt All right. So if you don't know what a CSA is, it's community supported agriculture. So you basically tell the farmer, Hey, you know, here's a hundred bucks or whatever it is, or you pay a monthly thing. And then the farmer agrees that they'll provide X amount of produce that's in season. And they just deliver a box or you pick it up. It's the cheapest way. And it also provides uh, a way for the farmers to predict demand and to know what to grow. So it's really win-win. And if you do that, you cut out the middleman who makes most of the money anyway. So the farmer's happier, you get fresher food, so you're happier. And they don't put weird chemicals on the organic food, like the new um, Bill Gates sponsored appeal, which is a chemical mix. 95% ish of what is in it is unlisted. They don't even tell you what it is, but we know 5% is organic citric acid, but I'd like to know the rest of it. For all we know, it's testosterone lowering alien space junk because they haven't told us. And I don't think we want to be eating things that are undisclosed ingredients. That's something that, I don't know, they've already tried to inject undisclosed ingredients. That didn't work very well. So maybe we don't want that on our food either. You know, tell us what's in there. Don't lie. Not a big thing, but that's what they're doing. So that's why you buy from a CSA. And thank you for doing that work. I know how hard it is. We never could launch a CSA. It was too much work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. All right. Let's go back to kids. But just guys... 
that's how you do it. Go to the farmer's market and uh, the kids will pick out the eggs from the egg lady and you'll have really good family time as well. And then they get connected to their food. All right. So you found after two days constipation from industrial food, shocking. And then you went back to the stuff we talked about, mostly meat, maybe some cooked pureed vegetables like the recipes in your book, right? Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the baby food facts report that you cover in your book. Well, yeah, I'm going to, I will pull that up right now because this was, this is what inspired me to start doing this because these are troubling statistics. The baby food facts report from Yukon Rudd Center for Food Policy and Health found only four out of 80 baby and toddler snacks met nutritious standards. Additionally, 50% of baby food snacks and 83% of toddler food snacks contain added sweeteners. We're truly training our children to prefer sugary foods from the very beginning. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. So you can get peas and carrots and just a little bit of table sugar. Mm-hmm. So then kids become preferential for it. I'd say we never gave our kids a lot of, of stuff. They get some honey or whatever and a, a piece of fruit or maybe two per day, but not, they can't live on fruit because that's also a source of sugar. They like their sugar now, but not to crazy extents. My son, who's 13, uh, he had a chance. He said, no, I'm going to try a Coke. I've never had a Coke. Like they've had ginger ale or something which I tell him, don't drink that. You know, drink some coconut water if you want sugar at least. But uh, so he tried it and he was like, this is gross. Like it's too sweet. It doesn't taste good. Why do people drink it? I don't get it. And I was like, man, I want to high five myself for that one um, because uh-huh. it was his palate that decided not a judgment thing because you don't want to mm-hmm. make kids have orthorexia or anything else either, right? Right. It's a tricky balance when they're young, the educational component, but also exactly not leading you know, a trail to, towards a an eating disorder or orthorexia. And through my research, I learned too, children under the age of two are so susceptible to this because that is when their taste preferences are being developed. So if they haven't had that yet, we're not depriving them. I I, I get that all the time. Well, aren't you depriving your your kid of treats? And No, no, I'm not. Um, I think that when they get bigger, they can make their own decisions. But those first couple of years when their little systems are developing, I think it's really important to give them a chance. And the CDC, another statistic that's so unsettling is that over 40% of children have one chronic illness. And that it just, it's such a bummer to read that and that these are our kids. This is the future. This is who's going to be running the country. And we're not giving them a chance to have their bodies operate the way that they're designed to operate. I don't know, Andrea. It seems like that's really good news. All you have to do is invest all of the proceeds from your CSA 
in Pfizer and other big pharmaceutical companies. And then you could turn all the children's illness into profits because after all, we eat profits, not food, right? Right. Right. <laughs> right. So 40% right. is shocking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of those when I was young and I, I did eat processed foods. We didn't know any better in the 80s. Macaroni and cheese, replacing butter with squeezed margarine, mm-hmm. uh, lots of corn syrup, diet sodas, the whole nine yards in an effort, a sincere effort to be healthy because mm-hmm. you know, like you, you did what the pediatrician said and you know, that's what you did if you wanted to be healthy. And I always struggled with my weight and gut-wrenching gas and a brain that didn't work and all sorts of health problems that were unnecessary that I've since turned around and like kind of left behind as a biohacker. The whole biohacking movement was based on, here's the bad stuff that happens from bad nutrition and an indoor environment that's just bad for you. In my case, toxic mold and pesticides and heavy metals and all that stuff. What do you think about heavy metals in baby foods? Well, that was a startling report that came out as well. And the answer, it goes back to eating closer to home, knowing more of where your your food is coming from. I know that heavy metals can be natural in the soil as well, but that this stuff is being marketed to kids and that it's, I read that report, I don't know, in the New York Times, but there was, you know, five times the amount of lead that's acceptable. And I think it's like the pouches and the And it's unsettling. And I don't know all the numbers, but hearing these statistics, I want to eat closer to home. I want my kids to grow up knowing that food isn't coming from a package, kind of supporting a a more local system if and when that's an option. I don't think my kids have ever had a puree out of a squeeze pack. Just because the, the lining of that is so full of endocrine disrupting chemicals. When your kids are young, you kind of want their hormones working because that's when stuff's getting wired in. And so the fact that it contains one apple that's been beaten all the crap, it is actually hundreds of apples that have been blended into the amount equal to one apple and heated and sterilized, whatever else they do. And then they give you this thing and you think you're giving your kid an apple. No, you just eat an apple if that's what you wanted to do. So some of the ways that those metals get in there, it can be from the packaging. But a lot of things that come from outside the U.S. or from older farms in the U.S., they're using brass bearings in the equipment that harvests or washes or grinds the food. And in the U.S., they're supposed to be using stainless steel. Brass breaks down when you grind the nuts. So a lot of these jungle products are naturally high because the farm equipment is third world farm equipment versus high end stuff, especially for processed foods. And people don't know that. And you could fix the problem, except I believe that this was a WHO thing from about 10 years ago. I'm not promising it was the WHO. It could have been another regulatory body, but I'm pretty sure it was the WHO. Um, They went around and they were setting uh, food standards for the allowable amount of metals, especially lead, in baby foods. And one of the countries in Africa said, well, these levels are so high that if we allow this, this will 10x increase the amount of kidney cancer in kids. And they said, yeah, but it's cheaper. And they were overruled and they had to do it. So we have a problem with international treaties subverting the sovereignty of governments. And the WHO is not a government entity and it has no rights to do that. So this is why your packaged baby food absolutely sucks. And you just want to do it. So all right, tell me in your recipe book, I know how hard it is to be on a farm, which 
usually farms are not close to good grocery stores because the land is cheaper when you're far away from good grocery stores. So farms are usually in food deserts unless you grow it. Do you like blend and freeze? Like, do you do a lot of processing at home? What can parents do? Oh, for sure. Blend and freeze. I also, a lot of the, if you are part of it with RCSA, I, I offer a lot of recipes because a lot of our CSA members have kiddos where you're using the whole, if you've got turnips, you're using the greens as well as the turnip roots and a chest freezer, I think is like one of the best investments for somebody that wants to eat locally and sustainably. I think it's one of the most economical ways to extend your food that you're buying. But going back to even like the baby food, one thing that I've learned, and I'm not a nutritionist, but this is all through my research, but you know, a lot of vegetables and fruits are fat soluble. So if you're just eating pureed carrots, well, you're not getting all the benefits of what's in that if you're not having that with a nourishing fat. So again, it's kind of cancels out the, and I'm guilty of this as a mom, I'm like, oh, it's, it's carrots, but it's like, well, my kid isn't getting the full potential of what's in that carrot if it's not being served properly. And I think that kind of goes back to the baby food package stuff where you, it feels like it's a good thing to be giving, but we don't know. And again, as parents, it's just, it's a major bummer. We don't all know. And I know that people are just, we're just doing the best we can and trying to make ends meet. But I want to offer hope for parents that you don't have to break the bank. You don't have to be a nutritionist or a scientist to feed your kids well. But I just, the food industry and what we're exposed to, it's damaging. One of my happiest moments as a biohacker was I got invited to speak at David Wolf's conference. David Wolf is a well-known raw vegan. And we'll say we don't agree on a lot of things. I, I used to be a raw vegan. Thank God I didn't voice that on my kids because it really messed up my life. And it has for actually millions of people. People, they quit doing the vegan diet for good reason. Not that you stop eating plants necessarily. You just don't eat only plants. So I went up and I said, guys, here's the compounds that are good in your vegetables. And there are some bad ones and some of them too. But all of these are fat soluble. And here's why grass-fed ghee, which is clarified butter, why it's good for animals, it's good for soil. And when you put grass-fed ghee with your pureed carrots or whatever other plant stuff, you get the polyphenols much better. So there's a case that supports your health, supports the planet, and supports animals, as long as it's from animals that are well-treated. And I came back the next year and gave a similar talk. And two-thirds of the audience was no longer vegan. And today, David Wolf sells grass-fed ghee as one of his products. So these are now technically vegetarians. Uh, we'll probably never agree on you know, how delicious a ribeye is. That's okay. But we agree on human health animal health and environmental health. It just so happens that ghee helps on all those. Do you use ghee or olive oil? Like what kinds of oils do you recommend yeah. kids? The main cooking fat in the cookbook is ghee and there's olive oil in there. I use duck fat, tallow, but the main cooking fat in there, because I think it's really accessible for parents too, is, is ghee. Yep. And in my house and in the Bulletproof diet, it's always been ghee tallow, duck fat, which is not quite as good as tallow, but still pretty good, or rendered lard from pasture-raised pigs that didn't eat corn and soy, which is decent, but not amazing. And maybe some coconut oil or palm oil if, if you need to, or you know, the local restaurant wants to use palm oil. That's a safe oil. It's just not as good as the others. So 
that's amazing for kids. And what happens when kids start eating those kinds of oils? Well, I think it's good for their brains. Yeah. It's good for their, yeah, their bodies. I mean, they're, they're growing so, so rapidly that I think it just feeds their brains. It definitely, in the studies I've seen, it feeds their brains. It also accelerates their metabolism. Saturated fats warm you up. The polyunsaturated fats slow metabolic rate. And when you first eat only plant oils for about six weeks, you get high from it because your body panics and gives you extra thyroid hormone until your thyroid runs out of the ability to do that and then your metabolism starts to slow. In fact, it's omega-6 fats that cause bears to hibernate in the winter. If you give them butter, they don't hibernate. They just keep going. So I don't want my kids hibernating. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's good for them. And so that's one of the things. It's, ener it's energy and it's also satiety. There's a couple of stories that come up for me. One of them is incredibly bougie, but we, we feed our kids in the morning. It was back when they were younger. It was avocados and smoked salmon for breakfast because smoked salmon from Costco, you know, you can get sockeye salmon. It's actually surprisingly cheap, more expensive than bologna, but not that much more expensive. And we would do that with some sort of grain-free wrap that we would put together for them. And they loved it. But then, you know, one day my son, as all toddlers do, was like, and, you know, I don't want to. And I said, hey, some kids who go to school don't get any breakfast. Or maybe they just get a bag of chips. Like, like you're really lucky to have smoked salmon and he looks at me, almost has tears in his eyes. He goes, you mean their mommies don't make them? Because <laughs> this is what he wanted for breakfast. He goes, you mean their mommies don't make them bacon and duck eggs for breakfast? Because our local farm had duck eggs. So like, he's having the best food on the planet. Uh -huh. And he's just mad because he didn't get that food instead of the other best food on uh -huh. the planet. And I just was shaking my head going, you have no idea. But he did eat the smoked salmon. So that was good. <laughs> And then my daughter came home from kindergarten or first grade or whatever. And she says, Daddy, as soon as I get to school, the teachers try to make me eat. And I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. How can the other kids eat? Don't they have breakfast? I said, well, ask them what they have. And she comes back and says, you know, little Susie or whatever her name is. She had a green apple for breakfast. And I said, well, if you ate a green apple, would you be hungry? And she said, yeah. I go, that's why the teachers are doing it. So we had to actually sit down with the teachers and say, don't make my kid eat if she's not hungry. Mm -hmm. How do you handle that with your kids? Well, I think that I talk about this in the cookbook. We over snack. I want my kids to eat meals over snacks yeah. and to honor their body. If they're saying they're not hungry, I'm not going to force them to eat. They, I want them. They know their body. I don't know their body. But I think that what happens, and I'm guilty of this, so I'm not perfect, is when my kids have oversnacked, they aren't going to come to the table hungry. They are going to pick around. If there's a new food that I want them to eat, they're less likely to eat it if they're not hungry. And I think that snacks are just, they're just marketed to schools, preschools, parents, all of us. We live in a snack kind of obsessed world. And so I think that snacks are fine, but I, I try to be mindful about them because I really do think sitting down and having real meals is what is the healthiest and, and keeps us full and feeling better than grazing. One of the things that worked for me when the kids were, were protesting new foods is, and I only had to do this once actually, I said, you know what? I'm so happy that you've decided to join me in an intermittent fast. It turns out our bodies could live for 60 whole days or more 
without dying of starvation, even if we're really hungry. So let's both put our food in the fridge and we can intermittent fast as long as you like. And instead of the normal thing, which is parents, we innately feel that like we are starving if our child is hungry because we're wired by mother nature to make sure our kids eat. Like it's a very deep visceral parental response, but it's automated in your body's operating system. And when I said that, my son just looked at me, I was like, fine. And then he ate and he never pulled it again because nice. they eat what we eat. Mm-hmm. The downside though is when we go to a restaurant, there's no kid's menu. They, it's they look expensive. At, they look at the kid's menu and they're like, what is this crap? Like, are you serious? You know, macaroni and cheese and fish sticks? Like we would feel, our tummies were hurt if we ate that. We're not going to eat that because they have eaten it once or twice and their tummies hurt and they're, we're done with that. So it is expensive. Like you go out to eat, they eat the salmon or they eat the steak because that's what they have at restaurants that's edible. And all this, you know, lasagna with whatever chemicals in it, it doesn't work. Everyone's hungry or gets a headache after they eat that. It, it's, it tastes good, but it's not a good choice. So yeah, it's quite expensive, but that's why we eat at home a lot. Yeah. And I say that a lot too. Like the cookbook is marketed as kid food or, but it, it, the recipes are their family recipes. Therefore, it's adult food, kid food. It's the same thing. And that's what I'm trying to, I had to market the book, but like, I want this to be for parents. Like we have to eat the same foods as our kids because we're modeling what we want them to be eating. So they need to see us eating the foods that that we want them to be enjoying. And, and they're not the exception. I, I think at the dinner table, it sounds exhausting to be cooking two different meals anyways, but um, I just, I want my kids to see us enjoying the foods that with them. How many dishwashers do you have? We don't have a dishwasher. Holy crap. You need no. a farm and a dishwasher? Are you a masochist? Um, yeah, yes. We do not have a dishwasher. Small house, small kitchen. I'm actually at my friend's house right now because my house is too crazy to be doing an interview. With two small kids, I get it. But yeah, no, we do not have, we have a dog. So he's oh, our- similar. Okay. Yeah, so he does a lot of the cleanup, but no dishwasher. Wow. So one of the things that, because we're doing three meals a day, usually mm-hmm. with the kids, and it's just too many dishes. So I lobbied very hard to get a second dishwasher put in and it changed our lives. It saved at least 45 minutes a day. That's Because awesome. you just set the table out of one dishwasher and clear it into the other. And oh my God, it was literally so much more quality time with the kids. But our, our dogs don't eat people food because so when they do, they fart all over the place and it didn't work for them. So they just eat raw meat and they're much happier. So yeah, our dogs don't have the best, best diet, but yeah, no, no, no dishwasher. So we just, there's a lot of dishes. There's a lot of dishes, yeah. but I've gotten efficient, but I've never had a dishwasher. So I don't know. I don't know the difference. <laughs> all right. Maybe that's it. <laughs> that's off. That's, uh, that's impressive. <laughs> Uh, I thought you were going to say you had one. I was going to upsell you on two, but yeah, I don't know. Wow. it does become for a lot of parents though, especially if you have a, a normal job with a normal commute, the amount of time it takes to do food prep, even if you're not doing like the crazy vegan thing I used to do where it's you know, two hours of soaking and blending and sprouting and all that crap, it can be just overwhelming. So what's the fastest recipe in your book? Oh gosh, you're putting me on the spot. The fastest recipe, I mean, eggs that's sort of my lazy dinner is, you know, doing some sort of an omelet or a quiche, just, you know, a uh, quick stovetop eggs, which I have in here. But I do a lot of, uh, I call them just like pancakes, but like these two ingredient pancakes where it's eggs and either meat or, and you can dollop it with some yogurt or some herbs on top. But I kind of do these little blender meat or vegetable pancakes with eggs and just fry them up. And that can be a, a meal 
with, you know, a little side. But the recipes are, all the recipes in the book are, are catered towards busy parents because I, I, I'm there. I don't want to be spending hours, but, you know, but you are cooking. They, they are still recipes. You are still cooking, but they are with busy parents with jobs in mind. It's so tempting to go to Uber Eats or somebody and just have some seed oil soaked, slightly cold restaurant food sent to your house that's expensive and you feel like you're saving time. And then you realize your trash can is full. You got to take the trash out and you had to tip the delivery guy. And you just realize you didn't save time when you did that. And when you become efficient in your kitchen, which parenting drives kitchen efficiency in a way that's insane. When you do that, like, oh, I cooked the entire thing in one pot. We did a lot of soups. Uh, I love the omelet thing. It works really well. And we throw the veggies and the meat in the pan, saute them a little bit, you know, take some blended raw egg stuff and pour it on them. And there you go. Like it, it's an actual protein and fat rich, healthy meal, unless you're allergic to eggs, which a lot of kids are these days. Mm-hmm. So I love that. And it's one pan or maybe two yeah. if, if you have to do two at a time. So I, I love that, that you've yeah. put that in the cookbook. And there's a lot, there's a lot of sheet pan meals in the cookbook as well. So it's kind of same idea, one pan and in the oven and just got to chop a little bit, but yeah. It's totally manageable. Why does it take up to 30 exposures for a baby to get used to a particular food? So this was, this is what I learned from a feeding specialist, a child feeding specialist. And I think that, and most kids, it's not up to 30, but it can take up to 30 exposures. And I think that there can be a fear around a new food or what it looks like, what it feels like in their mouth. It goes back to that kind of you're modeling what you want your kids to eat. So even if your kid doesn't eat something, or I always encourage parents, don't say my kid doesn't like this anymore. Like they're learning, they're still learning, they're new eaters. So I think if you want your kids to like beets, you know, continue to serve them maybe in different ways, but even if they're not eating them, I think it's still important to have them on the plate I don't think we should let our kids hear us say, oh, they don't like that or yeah. they're not going to eat that. And I'm, I've, I've had to catch myself with like, oh, she's not going to eat that. And, and we don't know. They'll surprise us. And they go through phases. And that's just part of toddlerhood and young children. But I think that the 30 exposures is a real, it's a high number, but it was, it's a real study that, yeah, it can take a while. So don't give up on if your kid turns their nose up at broccoli, keep going. One of the things that I learned as a parent, as a farming parent, is that if my kids usually liked, say, broccoli or some sort of a food, and then one night, like, I don't want to eat that. I used to just make them eat it. Like, come on. Like, that's what you do. And what I noticed was that those are the nights when I wouldn't feel good after dinner and the kids would misbehave and they'd have tummy aches. And eventually, I realized that there is something called alternaria brassicus which is a type of mold that grows in brassicas, which is broccoli and cabbage and things like that. And it grows when they're wet. I live in Canada where it's always wet. And most of the research on that particular mold is from Russia. But I would notice too on those nights, I'm like, God, I got like a weird headache and I'm sort of seeing colors. That's, it's called alternaria because it makes you see colors. And you know, it rips up your gut and it's just not good for you. So I realized my kids were using their internal radar to say, I don't want to eat that. So after a while, especially after age five, like, okay, if they always like this, but this time they don't want to eat it, I probably shouldn't eat it either because some part of them knows. And then it's down to training versus intuition. 
And I still wouldn't say that I've at all mastered it, but I noticed it enough that I always thought twice. And, but that's only after they're used to it and they like it. And if they suddenly don't want to eat it that one time, you might ask them why. And if they don't know why, maybe it's all right to skip it. Do you do that? Oh, totally. And it's hard, but I try and it goes back to like, I can control what goes on the plate, but they ultimately control what goes into their mouth. And I want the dinner table to be a joyful place. And I, I think if, if we try and micromanage too much, it turns into not an enjoyable experience, but I I do. Yeah, exactly. Like if my daughter's saying my tummy hurts or I'm full, I don't want her to ignore her intuition. She knows how she feels. I don't. And our kind of rule for the most part is we will save no, that's okay. You don't have to eat, but we'll save this for later. No snacks. One of my favorite types of recipes, even on the Bulletproof Diet, which works for kids, but it's designed for anyone, is purees. And my all-time favorite is like a cauliflower mash, boil or steam or roast cauliflower, blend it with some butter <laughs> or some ghee or whatever. And it, it tastes good. In fact, I had that for lunch with my son today and we threw some chunks of steak on it. And that was like a very fast one pan meal with probably three tablespoons of dried herbs to get all the polyphenols. And we're full and happy after that. You have some amazing recipes like that in your book as well. But you do some interesting stuff. You talk about using duck fat or olive oil. So when you're doing your deviled cauliflower mash, which is similar, but it's got a unique take. Do you remember that recipe off the top of your head? I, I remember most of the components, but I, I add a hard-boiled egg yolk to it. Even since then, I'll sometimes add two or three, but it makes it extra creamy, extra nutritious, extra fatty. It's delicious. And you also add some yogurt or goat or cow, yeah. or I would, you don't have it in your recipe, but I use sheep yogurt whenever I can, because uh-huh. it's the best you can get from human compatibility. And you, you do that, which gives it a real cheesy kind of flavor mm-hmm. along with some thyme. So that's the kind of recipe I had not thought of adding a hard boiled egg yolk, but I can see how that would be more of like that deviled egg consistency. Mm-hmm. So it, it, there's, there's really good flavors and that's going to fill you up because of the fat and you're going to pair it probably with some kind of protein, right? Mm-hmm. What's your favorite protein to eat with something like a deviled cauliflower mash? Oh, like a steak. I think a steak. <laughs> Gee, me too. And then just and then just, you know, doing the, you know, fork it, fork the steak, dip it in the mash. Yeah. And that's yeah. It's yeah. it's heavenly when you do that. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if it reminds me of childhood or something, but it's better than mashed potatoes. The other thing that I've been doing for a long time is if I'm in a hurry, I will take some of the uh, well, I used to use the bulletproof collagen back when I was involved with the company. But I will take a grass-fed collagen protein and I will take a few scoops of that and put it in there. And it's invisible. You cannot taste it. You cannot see it. Kids don't even know it's there. I tell them though, because I want them to know. And then all of a sudden, you just added 60 grams of high-quality animal protein to a meal that helps to build their connective tissue in their skin. And they don't see it like they would a steak, even though they want the steak. So that's kind of my secret. I'll add that to almost any recipe in your book and you can't tell I like that. I like that. All right. When kids are eight months and beyond, pediatricians say don't give salt to babies. <laughs> but you talk about giving salt to babies. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, you know, again, I wrote the book with I want people to take what they're most comfortable with. Um, so I use I, I use salt um, 
sparingly in recipes for, for the minerals and it, it can help with digestion and help increase the nutrients of, of, of the food. Why would you use it sparingly? That doesn't seem to make any sense. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I use it kind of sparingly, but you would have a heavy hand, it sounds like. So I think go with whatever you're comfortable <laughs> with. But if you Google salt and baby, I mean, you know, when I was starting to feed my children, yeah, no salt. And anytime you have a recipe out there with salt, it's like, don't give this to babies under one. And, and just through my own kind of reading up on it, I, I what, agreed to disagree. What did you find in your research on salt and digestion in babies? Well, I, the cookbook that I, that was the most inspiring to me or the book was Nourishing Traditions yeah. by Sally Fallon. And she, book. yeah, it really is. And I give her a lot of credit to making me feel more confident as a mom and the choices that I was making in the kitchen for my children. And, and she kind of gets into the talking about salt and children and I kind of felt more comfortable. Almost 20 years ago when I was running Palo Alto's first anti-aging nonprofit education group, uh, before I started the biomechanical movement, I gave this really carefully researched talk on salt and the history of why we decided salt was bad for us. It's not. We used to eat about 20 grams of salt a day because we didn't have refrigerators and all of our meat and all of our fish was salted and it did not cause high blood pressure. It did not cause problems. It gave us a ton of minerals. And so our salt consumption has dropped so much that if you were to follow the FDA's guidelines and why anyone would listen to them after the last three or four years, I don't know. But if you still followed their, their guidelines and had less than 2.4 grams of salt a day for an adult, that is so low that it increases your heart attack risk because when sodium is too low, it increases stress, which increases a hormone in the blood called rennet, which increases heart attack risk. But if you were to instead have four grams or what I do, eight grams a day for my body weight and to keep my blood pressure where I want it, it completely changes your digestion, changes your life. And if you're on a keto or a carnivore diet, you need even more. So the idea that your baby is supposed to not have salt, even though salt helps with a stress response. No, you probably don't want to have a heavy hand of salt, but you do want a little bit of salt because we're made out of salt water. And how's your baby supposed to hydrate if it doesn't have a little bit of salt? So that advice is absurd. It's wrongheaded and it doesn't make any sense. So the idea that somehow babies are little aliens that don't need normal nutrients a lot of that's overblown, but don't give your little babies honey, right? That seems like that might be a problem. Right. Yeah. Right. What's your favorite sweetener for kids? Whole dates. Whole dates. Yeah. For the sweet treats, I'll make like a little date paste. And so instead of sugar, that's how I sweeten. That's how I sweeten the ketchup in the cookbook. I'll sweeten any of the baked goods. I boil some water and then soak some dates and then blend that. And that's sort of the sweetener of choice. You can also buy date paste, right? That works on a bench. I think so, but actually, I, I don't know. I'm sure you can. I'm sure I, you I can. I always wonder about who ground it up, what quality were the dates. Uh-huh. Because let's face it, if you have a beautiful date, are you going to sell it whole or are you going to grind it up? That's why peanut butter always has more aflatoxin than whole peanuts. Not that either one of those is good food for you for a variety of reasons. But the peanut butter or even the almond butter that's pre-ground, it's, they use lower quality almonds because you can't see them. So you want to grind that yourself if you have the time to do it. And I certainly soaked and had enough dates to fill two lifetimes when I was a raw vegan. I guess I would worry if it was too much food, it's just too much sugar or dates are high in oxalic acid. 
And most babies don't have a huge problem with it. But if you give your babies a high oxalic acid diet and they have the genetics for it, if they're eating a ton of beets and a ton of kale, because you heard those were healthy, even though they're kind of rough on you, especially in excess, and then you stack it up with a ton of dates and a ton of sweet potatoes that are also high, you may end up finding you're getting too much of that plant nutrient. But I like dates as a general rule, but not, not in excess in the context of high oxalic acid. Well, that kind of goes back to like the variety. Talk about the CSA. It's like the best way to keep your diet, have a variety in your diet is you're truly eating what's available, which changes all the time. Are you pro-kale or anti-kale? Well, I've heard you and you are so anti-kale, but we grow kale. And so I'm pro-kale on occasion. We actually grow a small row of kale as well. And I mostly use it for pictures of the pigs spitting it out because they don't want to eat it unless there's nothing else to eat. But I'm teasing. Uh, it's because our farm manager likes kale and uh, eats it anyway. So I I've, have no problem with people want to eat kale. You want to eat some kale once or twice a week? Fine. But if you worship kale as a superfood, it doesn't do that. And excessive kale, I find, is a problem. So it's like, okay, a variety of leafy green vegetables. You have some on occasion. For me, because I was raw vegan and I, I raised my tissue stores of oxalic acid to absurd levels, what I find is, well, if I eat a big bowl of kale, the next day I feel it in my low back, my shoulders, my hands, my grip strength isn't as strong. It's oxalic acid depositions. Those parts of my body never hurt when I don't eat that stuff. And you also can find thallium in it. So if your soil is super clean, you want to do it some of the time, I'm fine with that. It's just the worship of kale to the exclusion of other easier to digest vegetables and meats is one of those things where I'm kind of laughing every time I make fun of kale um, because yes, it's evil, but you can have a little bite of evil sometimes. It just tastes better with bacon and sugar on it. Just saying. <laughs> Cop copy that. Speaking of bacon, uh, what's your thoughts on bacon and kids? I think it's fine. Again, we have access to good quality bacon. I don't think anything should be given in excess, but I personally don't have a problem with good quality bacon. I looked at a lot of research on it and finding good quality bacon is absurdly hard yeah. because most people feed the pig stuff that makes them have a kind of fat, the linoleic acid, the omega-6s that you don't really want to eat a lot of. So you kind of cook the bacon and toss out the bacon grease. But if the bacon is from healthy pigs that ate plants and even meat and things like that, like the best pigs you're going to find are eating leftover milk from a regenerative farm and they're eating the leftover eggs and like they're fat and happy. Those pigs, their fat is going to be much healthier for you and you can use that rendered fat. So we ended up using our own pigs rendered fat. They all ate all the organic vegetables from the local co-op and whatever we could grow on the farm. And man, that is some really good bacon. And I felt no problem giving to the kids, but we don't burn it either. Like we, we cook it mm -hmm. so it's still relatively soft. Crispy bacon is probably not good for anyone, but soft right. bacon, depending on how it's cured and all of that, I think it's part of a healthy diet for most people. Mm -hmm. And it seems like you you do that. So my kids are totally not afraid of bacon, but got to be nice to the pigs. Yeah. What is the hardest vegetable to grow on your farm? Oh, gosh. I will say we've been farming for 13 years now. We screw up a little less every year. I'm trying at the top of my head. I mean, we used to really not be good at growing carrots. 
we're great at growing carrots now. We brought a lot of fertility into our farm, but we've had trouble with corn in the past. You're probably not a huge fan of corn, but we, we've had trouble with corn. We're also at elevation. We've had trouble with tomatoes in the past, but we grow those in hoop houses now. Cauliflower, cauliflower. That's one that we've had a lot of trouble with. This is the first year that we're doing spring cauliflower after years of not doing spring cauliflower and only doing fall. We get root maggots, usually decimate our cauliflower, but I would say right now that's one of the tougher ones for us to grow. You're in Oregon, the Pacific Northwest. We've had problems. Uh, we finally got our cauliflower down and fennel sometimes just goes to seed. I love a good fennel when I can get it, mm-hmm. but it's rough sometimes and, and depends on the part of the world. The most challenging though was the Haskap berry, which is a Siberian blueberry that has 80 times more polyphenols than blueberries. And we found the ones hybridized for Canada and they just barely produce. Like you go there and you eat 12 of them. Yay. <laughs> I got 80 times less than my blueberries. It wasn't <laughs> worth it. So I don't know how many listeners are going, Dave, why are you guys talking about this? I don't care. <laughs> Bottom line is if you buy your veggies somewhere, there's a farmer and there are a lot of people like Andrea out there who are working their butts off on small farms. They're building soil and they're doing it right. And you can't tell when you go to a grocery store, whether it was grown by someone who cares or whether it was grown by some industrial conglomerate who put a sticker on it and sprayed it with whatever and called it organic. And this is why I love farmer's markets. (laughs) And this is why I've gone to the trouble of building my own organic regenerative farm because biohacking changed the environment around you and inside of you to have control of your own biology that goes double for your kids because they respond to the environment even more. If you can have a garden that in and of itself is a massive, massive gift. It only needs to have one row of berries and you'll have a little one-year-old putting a little raspberry on the end of her finger and waving it around. And that teaches them something about food that is, it's actually like a sacred thing that kids need to know about. Food doesn't come from grocery stores, doesn't come from squeeze packs and it doesn't come from golden arches. It comes from farmers and it comes possibly from hunting and gathering if you're lucky enough to live in a part of the world where you can do that. Uh, And when you teach them that, they lose all kinds of fears and they're very hard to program. And it's one of the reasons that there's a a very, very definitive war on small farmers right now, an economic war to make it harder and harder to do it. Around the world, you probably didn't see this because, oh my God, some submarine full of people who shouldn't have been on a submarine crashed. And during that time, 3,000 small farmers in Finland, some of them on their farms for five generations, had their farms seized by the government because cow farts ignoring the fact that vegans fart 17 times more than non-vegans, according to studies. So this was an absurd thing, but there is actually industrial companies trying to monopolize it. In the UK right now, it's illegal to own a female pig because you might let it breed. God forbid you had self-reproducing food instead of buying spam at the store. Uh, So this kind of stuff is slowly creeping in around the world. And it's people like Andrea who are holding the line and telling you, wow, when you feed real food to your kids, instead of what big chemical companies want you to call food, your kids thrive and they can pay attention in class. And then there's no need for Adderall because you just have them go outside and then they run around for a little while. (laughs) And magically it all works out. We are at a point where we can have distributed agriculture. There's plenty of room and plenty of land for small farms to blossom and grow. And it can be economical, but it only happens when people are willing to do it and when the powers that be, at least for now, when they try to stop it because it makes it harder and stressful and more expensive. 
So I want to say thank you personally, Andrea, for not just creating your farm and your CSA and making good food, but for studying it for your own kids and then writing a book about it because it's hard to do books because it's hard to do that. I write books too. It's, it's a labor of love. This show is part of getting the word out around your book. And I'm hopeful that people with kids or just people who want recipes that are quick and easy and good will pick it up and take a look at it because it's hard work to run a farm. It's harder work to write a book and you've done both. So hats off for being a, a mom, a mom without a dishwasher, for God's sake, <laughs> a farmer uh, and an author and someone who's just telling the truth in what you write. And that's hard to do. Truly appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Guys, if you like the episode, you know what to do. You might pick up a copy of Let Them Eat Dirt. It's on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you like to buy books. By the way, if you're wondering why I say that every time, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books, it's because indie bookstores are the places of freedom to a certain point still anyway. And Barnes & Noble has made great strides against Amazon. But if you say bad things about any of them, even like how evil Amazon is, they might punish you for saying evil things about them or for saying truthful things about their evil. So I, for one, support our new AI robot overlords, just so the algorithms get everything clear. But you buy your books wherever you like to buy books. Request Andrea's book, Let Them Eat Dirt, at your local indie bookstore, and maybe you'll go to heaven. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.